This is episode 152 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Valerie Johnson. She received her Bachelor's of Science and Master's of Science degrees in Speech-Language Pathology from Florida State University and her PhD in Communication Sciences and Disorders from the University of Massachusetts. As a doctoral student at UMass, she worked with Drs. Harry Seymour, Jill DeVilliers, and Tom Roper in the development of the Diagnostic Evaluation of Language Variation, the DILV. Currently, Dr. Johnson is an assistant professor and the founding program director for the newly developed SLP program at Rutgers University in Newark, New Jersey. Her current research examines language acquisition and its disorders in the context of dialect variation and methods to reduce cultural and linguistic basis within LP assessments of children who speak AAE. to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old-school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, Valerie. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate the invitation, and and um, this is a very timely and important topic. So I really appreciate you providing this forum and and having the using your platform to address this topic. Yes, yes, very much so. Happy to Just tell the people a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, Well, I'm Dr. Valerie Johnson. I am currently the uh, founding program director for the speech language pathology program at Rutgers University in Newark, New Jersey. So brand new program. Um, We hope um, with everything going well with accreditation um, that we'll be opening up in fall 2021. One of the special things about the program is that it has a focus on diversity and multiculturalism. So, we, you know, maybe we'll, we can talk a little bit about that later. But I do my research in the area of child language acquisition and disorders. I have a particular interest in children who use the dialect of African American English. And so a lot of my research is kind of rooted in looking at how do we differentiate between a language difference and a language disorder. So just trying to address the disproportionate number of, of African-American children who are receiving speech and language services, whether it is a related service or if it's their primary service. A lot of children who really are not language disordered are receiving therapy and they, and they really shouldn't. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just trying to do my piece with addressing that. Yeah. So, so help me understand 
so the the term that I was taught was African American vernacular. Uh-huh. Is that is that now African American English? You know, it, it well, uh, there that's an interesting question because okay. like historically the terminology changes, right? Okay. So it was it, uh, like back in the seventies, sixties, and seventies, it was Black English, and then it kind of turned into I think nineteen. 72 or 76, I can't remember the date, Ron Williams coined the term Ebonics. And so with, which is just a combination of phonics and ebony. So that's how Ebonics, that term came about. African-American English is slightly different than African-American vernacular English. Um, Vernacular really kind of speaks to some of the slang that is used. So it's, it's kind of evolving and changing. African-American English really kind of speaks more towards not so much the vernacular or the slang that may be used by African-Americans, but the semantics, the syntax and the pragmatics okay. right, associated with the dialect. So there's some, you know, there's a lot of overlap between the two, but it's just that, you know, one kind of, in, includes is more inclusive, if you will, okay. of the of slang um, okay. usage. Awesome. Thank you for clarifying that. For oh, me. sure. All right. So where should we start? Well, wow, that's a great question too. You just, <laughs> of, you just, you just have all the good questions. I do. <laughs> so, so let me, you know, I guess I want to, uh, you know, let me talk a little bit more since we're, you know, you asked me about the difference between African American English and, and African American vernacular English. You know, the, the issues surrounding that as it relates to speech language pathology. Now, you know, I am a child language specialist, right? So I deal with the pediatric population primarily. That's been my thing, you know, since I, I worked as a clinician in the public schools many years ago and Fairfax County Schools, which is right outside of Washington, D.C., before I transitioned into different levels of academia. I moved into from the public schools. I became a clinical supervisor, and then I returned to school to get my Ph.D. at the University of Massachusetts and studied with Harry Seymour. And kind of, you know, when I was a, a, a clinician working in the public schools, I I recall one of my clients or not clients, but one of my students and I'll just call, I'll call her Julie. Okay. So she was five years of age, African-American, just, and just really, really, really full of life. But when I looked at her IEP, when I looked at her individualized education program, and I saw a lot of things on it that, you know, it's like she should include um, is in her sentence. So she should pronounce the TH sound. So I was curious about that because when I had my interactions with Julia, I didn't notice anything that was an impairment, right? You know, when I was in school, I didn't, we really didn't talk about language variation. I think as I reflect back language variation was limited to term paper that I wrote in graduate school. And that was it. And so I didn't have the tools to work with when I was a clinician 
to really, you know, kind of focus on Julia's language abilities and to say with certainty that she has a language disorder or she, or she doesn't have a language disorder, right? So I didn't have, I wasn't equipped. So she kind of became my muse because, you know, she was smart. She was, I mean, she was quick as a whip, but she had, she was exhibiting these differences. Right. And so I always questioned whether she has a language. Did she really have a language disorder? I doubt that she, you know, looking back, I doubt that she did. So she kind of became my, you know, one of the reasons why I pursued this avenue, because here's a child who was receiving speech and language services. And at the time she was in a, a learning disability, self-contained classroom, you know, now having some experience behind, you know, behind me, I kind of questioned if she even had a, a learning disability, you know, was her learning disability based on her language and her language did not fit within that box of mainstream American English. So as I, you know, kind of held on to Julia, I worked at Auburn University and, and um, as a clinical supervisor and had the opportunity to work with Bill Hayes, William, William Haynes, and uh, Mike Moran. And they were doing some research in this area of African-American English. And so some of their work kind of, again, I mean, you know, it's, it's like it just kind of spurred me on, you know. And when I thought about going back to school to pursue my PhD, um, I'll never forget um, Bill Haynes, you know, said, you need to talk with Harry Seymour. He is the guru. And I'm like, really? And he's like, yes. And so the journey, so that's how my journey, you know, kind of began. And so working with Harry, Jill de Villiers, who may sound familiar to people, um, because she was a student of Roger Brown, right? Brown's 14 grammatical morphemes. And so she and her husband did some work with Rod, a lot of work actually with Roger Brown. They did a study that kind of supported Brown's work with these 14 grammatical morphemes. So Jill de Villiers, Harry Seymour, Tom Roper, who's also a linguist, were at the time developing, looking to develop a test to make this distinction. We did not have any test to develop that, that would distinguish between a language difference and a language disorder. And so I had the opportunity to work with these three individuals on the diagnostic evaluation of language variation now known as the DELVE. And if you flip to the semantic portion of the DELVE, you'll see my dissertation work in there. So it's the first test that actually can make this distinction between a language difference and a language disorders for all varieties of English, right? Southern English, Appalachian English, um, African American English, all speakers, mainstream American Amazing. English, all yeah. dialects. And so one of the one of the things that that I've learned through this process was when we want to make this distinction between a language difference and a language disorder is that we really need to look at what's common between the two dialects because that's where that's where the nuggets are 
right? Because it's, it's difficult to distinguish between a language difference and a language disorder if the language allows for zero copula. So the child says he bad instead of he is bad as, as in mainstream American English. So how do we make this distinction, right? Yeah. Because he bad is something that a, a, a child with a language impairment may utter, right? So it gives the appearance of language impairment. So, you know, working with Harry, making these distinctions between language difference and language disorder, using what's common between the two dialects is really where we find the opportunity, you know, to, to make a more valid and reliable um, uh, distinction. You know, there's a lot of work out there. There's still a lot more work that needs to be done um, in this area. But, you know, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of, of that process. And I am, you know, am looking to continue to add to the, the research um, in this particular, in this particular area. That's, that's amazing, Valerie. That's amazing. I have, I have two thoughts. Number uh-huh. one is, I'd be so curious to see or, or to hear how this research evolves with the adult population, because I even yeah. think of some of our patients that may have just had a stroke and, right. you know, if we're doing an aphasia battery with them or mm-hmm. sometimes they're suspected of, of apraxia. So right. I think of these different conditions that they mm-hmm. may be falsely diagnosed with that could be a dialectical difference right. instead. So I, I would love to see this work right. evolve into. Right. And, and you know, the interesting thing when we look at language difference, whether it's with a dialectal speaker or a bilingual speaker, we tend to focus on the child. There isn't as much research with adults. Yeah. Right. So um, my colleague at Rutgers, Jose Santana, he is a bilingual speech language pathologist, and that is his area. So we've talked about collaborating on, you know, doing some work. He's the aphasia guy. He's, you know, he can handle that. I can handle the dialect side. So we've, we've had some discussions about doing some research with the adult population um, because there is you know, such, there's a, just a limited amount of research in that area. Unfortunately, I really can't, you know, speak yeah, in no, depth no. about it. Yeah, but, no, that's okay. But, but it's, a, it's a limited amount of, of research in that area. Yeah. You know, which which has, you know, it all has, it's, it's, it's so interesting when we talk about, at least to me, when we talk about diversity, right? Because it's such, it's, it's, it's such, has so many layers to it, right? So when we want to talk about diversity and the association, you know, not only the association, but institutions and the profession, they said, we want to increase diversity. How do we, you know, we can't just say, I want to increase diversity and then magically it happens, right? right? And so we have to kind of go roll the peel off the different layers to see how can we increase diversity, right? And why is that important? And so, you know, one of the things that I've been doing some, you know, reading on is looking at our admissions process because in order to have more of a a representation of what America looks like in the profession, we have to start with, you know, who are we recruiting? 
And when we look at the numbers, and you may be aware of this, the the percentage of minorities in the profession is 8.3%, which is pretty dismal. Dismal, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's just, and, and I'm being kind. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's pretty dismal. And that's not what, you know, when we look at America, that is not what we look like, right? So if only 8% of speech language pathologists and audiologists are being represented, right? Who are they treating, yeah. right? Right. And so then we have the culture clash. Right. And so rolling back, how can we get how can we move up from eight percent to whatever percent? How do we do that? And I believe that, you know, it is more of a grassroots effort than what ASHA can dictate to us. It's not a top down effort, but it's more of a bottom up effort. And I'm not saying that ASHA can't do more and that ASHA can't um, help improve opportunities for students of color. But it really has to be, I think, more of a grassroots type of movement. What do I mean by that? Well, I have a question for you. Yeah. How did you, <laughs> how did you decide to become a speech language pathologist? What did, you know, was that your major no, um, I actually started out as a fashion design major and my dad got laid off and uh -huh. he told me that I needed to find a real major or else they weren't going to help me with college anymore. So, so. I, <laughs> so I had to go to the drawing board and I, I honestly didn't know about speech pathology and my mom said something to me like, why did you look into this? And I was like, I don't know what that is. And she was right. like, well, your brother went to a speech therapist when he was younger and you like loved the sessions. You mm. always helped out. And I didn't remember that. And I was like, Oh, and she's like, I think she's like, you were so interested in it. You were so good with it. Why don't you look into it? And right. So that was that. And that's part of my point. Yeah. That, or the point that I'm trying to get to is that it's not a major that you just automatically think about. You yeah. don't think, you know, you think about when I go, when, when you go off to college, you think about, okay, I can be an engineer. I can be uh, pre-med. I can go into teaching, but you, but very rarely do we think about speech language pathology, even though it's like, you know, the top five, top 10 occupations. Right. It's still not something that just kind of rolls off the tongue. I'm sure we can walk outside the door right now and ask somebody, do you know what speech language pathology is? Yeah. And they're like, what is that? Yep. So so we need to do a better job with recruiting from the grassroots. Right. Participating in career day. Right. So that students in fifth, sixth on up have that seed planted. So that's, so that's one of the things, right? Um, I think there's something, and I don't know what it is, but there's something that's going on from the, from the undergraduate level to the graduate level, right? So what there, that, are, that is preventing students of color in particular from gaining access to a graduate program, right? 
So we move from middle school, high school, and then, okay, I want to major in speech language pathology or audiology. So I get into, a, I get into an undergraduate program. How do I get, I can't work as an SLP or an audiologist without a, an advanced degree. So I have to go to graduate school. When we look at the numbers of students who are um, being admitted or gaining um, the invitation to be to attend a graduate program, I was looking at these numbers from the latest um, CAPSID report and the Council of Academic Programs in Speech Language Pathology. And in their most recent report, and this was for the 20. 18-2019 admission cycle. When we look at white students who re received an invitation to a graduate program, the 75%, 60% were received, you know, were declined. Hispanic students receiving acceptance, 8.7%, um, declined 19%. Black students receiving acceptance, 3%, declined 6%. So we can just see, I mean, just with just those percentages, you see this, you know, great disparity, right? There are great differences. But the other thing that I find interesting in looking at these numbers is that when we look at the acceptance, the, um, the acceptance decline ratio is that with white students, more there's a higher percentage being accepted than declined. And it's just the reverse relationship with students of color, where more are being declined. The percentage is higher for, for being declined admitted, um, admissions, right, than being accepted or receiving that invitation. So there's something wrong with the admissions process. That's what that those numbers say to me, I mean, just speaking in just very general terms, that there's something going on with the admissions process. The process itself is preventing students of color from gaining entrance into a graduate program, right? And if you don't gain entrance into a graduate program, then you're going to end up with a profession that's 92% white, right? but America is not 92% white. So there, therein lies the culture clash when we get into clinic, right? And treatment, you know, goals that we are establishing for our clients and for our patients and for our students may not be appropriate because we, because of that culture clash, right? Okay, so that's, so that's, one piece. Now, one thing that, that I'm, you know, looking into now is using more of a whole, what's called um, in the, the literature, holistic admissions, right? And that's kind of gaining some traction um, in, in other disciplines. Not, I haven't seen it. Um, I'm not saying that it doesn't exist in speech language pathology, but it's probably a small percentage but using more of this holistic type of approach, it gives you a little bit more flexibility in the admissions process. It allows you to individualize a little bit more, right? 
And I don't want to say that it levels the playing field, because I think when we say levels the playing field, that means that we are already starting at the same level. And there's some students who are trying to gain admissions who aren't at this, who don't have the same um, access that other students have. What do I mean by that? GRE, we know, you know, GRE, well, there's some research out there that says GRE really doesn't predict much of anything about, um, you know, how a student will um, do in graduate school, but let's put that aside. Yeah. So GRE, when I was looking uh, into returning to school, my GRE scores had expired. I had worked seven years um, at the master's level. So I had to take my GRE scores, uh, take my GRE again, was not looking forward to it, but I had to do it. And I, I was looking around because at the time it was Barron's, Barron's um, GRE prep or something like yeah. that. I'm looking around and okay, you know, I'll get the book, but then someone, and I can't remember where, who, you know, they're like, I took a GRE um, prep course by Princeton Review. And I'm like, wow. So I look into it, Princeton Review, and it was like $1,000 to, to take that review. So GREs are important, right? Everyone doesn't have $1,000 sitting around to take that GRE prep, but some do. Right. And so that's what I mean by leveling the playing field. Everyone doesn't have the same access. Right. Um, I didn't I didn't take the GRE prep course. I just used the book. (laughs) It was it was a lot. It was a lot less expensive and I didn't have that kind of money, um, you know, to use. So. So if we're able to, you know, make. Um, give some flexibility to our admissions process, our admissions process, the admissions um, cycle, then that may help increase diversity. And when we increase diversity within the program, we are, um, we learn from each other. And there's been some research in other disciplines that looked at, you know, this holistic admissions process. And well, what happens if you, you know, with this whole uh, holistic admissions process? Well, yes, diversity increased, but not only did diversity increase, because it's not, you know, that just shouldn't be our end goal, right? But that student engagement in the community improved. So they saw an increase in student engagement. They saw that student cooperation and teamwork was increased as as diversity increased. And to me, and especially in this day and time, to me, this is what I think is, is an important point, is that the students being open to a perspective that was different than theirs, just being open, to listening to someone who has a different perspective than theirs. And they saw these improvements. So we become a better profession, right? And because ultimately, it's about our clients. That's the end goal, right? 
our client, connecting with our clients, creating and uh, generating goals for our clients that are appropriate for our clients so that they can improve and that their life can improve, you know, whatever level, right? Everybody's not going to be able to get up to, you know, that, you know, within normal range, right? But whatever level to help improve, you know, clients um, outcome and, and client quality of life. So it, it's just, it just kind of what uh, is a domino effect and it cascades, right? And so, you know, this, this issue of diversity is really starts at a much earlier stage than I think we kind of give, give it um, attention to. We don't give that much attention to that. Some of the things that I would like to do with the new program at Rutgers, you know, and one, address diversity, right? Increase student diversity. Um, we also are developing our curriculum because this is also part of helping with, with client and patient outcomes, right? Is the training and the education. If I don't have, like I said, you know, back when I was in school in the late, mid to late 80s, we didn't talk ab about bilingualism, Bilingual acquisition, didn't talk about it. African-American English, my paper, which was like about five pages, double-spaced, <laughs> right? That was it. So training and education, right? And so there's been, you know, some work done um, by Ida Stockman. I want to say it was... Uh, oh gosh, on it, no, it was, gosh, 2006 maybe? She wrote an article talking about curriculum and multiculturalism. And when we want to address multiculturalism in speech language pathology, actually the best way to address that is for diversity to be infused throughout the curriculum. Each course is talking about diversity issues so that it's not, it's not just something that is tacked on at the last lecture, the last week of the semester. It's not the last lecture. It's something that should be infused throughout. So when I'm talking about when I teach language disorders um, in school-age children, and I'm talking about assessment, I infuse diversity in that. When I talk about, you know, goal selection and goal writing, how do we write appropriate goals for our students? That's part of that. I'm not leaving it at the end. But we also should be making sure that it is addressed in all courses. And so that way we are improving you know, knowledge and skills, well, hopefully skills, because everybody is not going to, to have access in their clinic to a multicultural or diverse population. But at least they'll have the tools and the resources upon which to fall back on after, gradu you know, after graduation. So that's one of the things that, you know, we, we would like that we're addressing 
you know, in our program is that diversity will be infused throughout the program and not just a standalone course. Standalone courses are good, but if you want to do better, it needs to be infused throughout. Yeah, yeah. I think just bringing that awareness that, like you said, when you get to the goal section, you know, consider these things, it's not going to be left at the end. Right. So I guess, you know, I guess, Valerie, what do you think what do you think we can do for actual like clinicians that have been out in the field for years and years? Because I've even, you know, had some conversations with some colleagues that they just were never educated on on these, these pieces. And it's not that they, you know, would love to learn. It's just, so where do we go from here? You know, I think this may be the part that we do have to call ASHA down to, to impart some. Right. Right. Some, some structure. Yeah. I, I, what I would like to see in the, in the CAA, the, the Council of Academic Accreditation, so these are this, the, body, the, the body that accredits our programs, yep. what I'd like to see them do is to increase the focus, not, I'm not saying it should overshadow, but let's, let's improve how we are as programs are documenting and addressing diversity in our programs, because quite frankly, it's not being addressed beyond a a check mark. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a level or two above that, but it's not really being being addressed. So, so we can expand on that. If I have to document where my te- where, where is, where am I teaching, you know, you know, certain standards, we need to, we can improve that. I think for current clinicians who've been out in the field for a while, continuing at ASHA conventions, and I know that's not convenient for everybody to go to an ASHA convention, right? But what can they do? ASHA conventions, there's ASHA Connects, um, which has that three themed conference on healthcare, school age, and I cannot remember the third arm. I want to say it's private practice, but I'm yeah, not sure. Yeah, yeah, it's it's private, it's private. Yeah. Attending that, state conferences should, should be offering um, opportunities for clinicians to kind of get to either bone up or to learn, uh, you know, more on this topic. So I think that's where it's it's going to it's it's going to have to be kind of placed on the clinician. Now what ASHA can do because they have recently um, instituted in order for us to maintain our C's, we have to have a continuing ed on ethics, mm-hmm. right? And supervision. And, and, and supervision. So if you yeah. want to supervise, right, you need to have a document, documented a continuing education in, in those areas. So can we add diversity on there? And, and you know, better. <laughs> so, right, because and you're right. We, and we should because the U.S. is becoming more and more diverse and if we don't have the tools in our tool belts to treat our clients, we are going to see increased caseloads. And our caseloads are pretty challenging mm-hmm. enough as it is, right? Yeah. So, it, so in order to not add extra work, 
on our treating clinicians, either in the schools and or in hospital settings and et cetera. But if we don't want to increase that burden on our clinicians, then we need to amp up our continuing education. And but it's it's not only about you know continuing education, you know, ASH is responsible for that, right? But it's also the clinician is going to have to do some self-assessment and self-evaluation and have some very truthful and honest conversations with him or herself. Because we bring to the table who we are. We bring our bias. We bring our beliefs. And we all have biases and a belief system and values. We all have that. So every time I step into someone's home and to, you know, uh, when I was doing some early intervention and I'd step into the home, I'm bringing my biases, my belief system in, in there. And, and if I don't stop and kind of like check myself and assess myself, I could be doing more harm than good. And by that, I mean, I'm not, I'm not helping that parent. I'm not helping that child. I'm not helping that family to, for that child to reach his or her potential. And just to kind of give you an example of that, um, a few years ago, I was um, doing some early intervention um, work on the side. I kind of like to keep, keep one foot in the clinic um, because it keeps me fresh yeah. and it helps me. Um, I believe it helps me to be a better instructor and to, you know, so I can give some examples to my students. I was doing some work um, in early intervention and I was working with a family and they were, um, were um, Puerto Rican, had a Puerto Rican background. And so I'd come in with, you know, with my, my bag and like, let's get to work. Come on, let's go. Let's get to work. Okay. Come on, kid. Let's go. And every time I would come in, the mom was always asked me about, you know, like, how was, how was my day? And how are you doing? And at the time, my father was ill. How's your dad doing? And I'm like, we're wasting the first 10, 15 minutes. Everything's great. Come on, let's go, let's go. I had to stop. And I had to reflect. And I had to think. And I was like, oh, this is the culture clash. I was all about, let's get ready, let's go to work. But what was important to that, to that mom was her interpersonal relationship with me, right? And this, was, and this went on for a year, you know? And, and once I kind of realized this, I was like, oh, okay, this is what's going on. Let me, because I'm in her home, let me you know, kind of change things, change myself, right? We had a wonderful relationship um, where, where we worked really well together to help in helping her son. The other thing that I realized when, uh, with this particular family was, I would say, come on, mom, let me show you how to do this. So we, you know, I said, you're the expert with your kid. He, you're, you're the expert. You know your son better than I do. Come on, mom, but I'm going to show you a couple of things. She's like, no, 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 no. You're the teacher. You're the professional. And she would say that to me. 
And I realized that it wasn't out of being lazy, that it wasn't out of, I don't want to do this. You fix my kid. It was out of respect for me as a professional that she was, that's what she was giving me. Right. So when I realized that, that she is, is entrusting me with her child because I've had, I've had additional training, right? Then I said, well, come on, mom, you're the, you're the expert on your child. I have, I have book knowledge, but you have, you know, John knowledge, right? So let's work together. And we work so well together, right? So all of these things, right, help create a better outcome for her child. And when we have the knowledge, the skills, the resources to go back to or to know where to look for things, that's when we can create a better um, outcome for, for our, our, our clients. And I think, and, you know, we all go into speech pathology, you know, because we like to work with people and to help, right? And so that's, that's what we can end up with when we um, kind of take a step back and have that self-assessment. And I had to admit to myself that I didn't know everything, right? And that I was, I had a bias when I was walking into that home that I was bringing into that home, right? So I had to stop, kind of take a step back, right? And I think that's the hard part for for some clinicians is that they're going to have to have those hard conversations with themselves about any bias, you know, and some of it, 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 it's, you know, it could be something like, you know, I still hear today, well, you know, they shouldn't talk that way. That's, you know, that kind of, okay, well, let's, let's talk about that. You know, well, they should, you know, they need to code switch. Okay. Well, let's talk about codes. You know, these are things that we bring into that room when we're working with our, or the home, Right. When we're working with our clients and we and that's where we need to start with first. You know, because I can I can talk all day long about, you know, difference and disorder. But if you still think if you still think that that difference shouldn't be there, then, you know, I can talk to until I'm blue in the face, which is difficult to do. But it can happen. Awesome, Valerie. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Oh, was there any, was there anything else that, uh, anything else you want to touch on? I think that I talked a little bit about this, but um, I just found it really interesting when I was, you know, kind of in, in preparing for this, you know, diversity and inclusion versus equity and social justice. And it's a, it's a slight shift in mindset, right? So that, we think of, you know, we, we strive for equality, but I talked about that before, where equality means sameness, right? Versus equity, which is about fairness. And are we being fair, making sure everyone has access to the same opportunities, right? So it could be if we want to improve the profession and to improve 
and increase diversity in the field, that we may need to make a shift from thinking about equality and shifting or moving towards thinking about equity. In this blog that I found on Inside Higher Ed, it was talking about this diversity and inclusion versus equity and social justice. And it was asking certain questions, right? So one was diversity asks, who's in the room? Who's in the room? Oh, I have, I have two black students over there. Have, yeah. Who's in the room? Versus equity, who is trying to get into the room, but they can't. So that's a shift in, in mindset, right? Diversity asks, how many more minorities do we need compared to you know, how we did last year? Equity, what conditions have we created to maintain this status quo, right? What have we done? So, this, so it's, a, it's a slight shift. I like the first one, you know, the, my first example better, if we could use that. But it's a slight, sh- it's a, really, it's a shift in, in thinking. Not so much about equality, but about equity. Fairness and making sure everyone has access. And that is why it's so important to think about the admissions process. Because, we, because I believe we think we're, I believe we are treating admissions more like equality, where everybody is coming in, everybody has the same standards, everybody has to get X score on the GRE, everybody's GPA has to be here, everyone has to have two letters of recommendation, versus if you think about it, that again, like that GRE score, everyone may not have the same access to get that GRE score or the same experiences, right? Maybe I'm a first generation student, so I don't have my mom or my dad or family member to kind of help um, guide me through this process, to kind of, right? Yeah. So these, so if we, if we look at admissions more about equity and being more flexible, then we might be able to see some sh- a shift in our admissions process. And then we'll see those numbers go up and we can be more than 8%. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> more oh, than goodness. 8%. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you, Valerie. This has been so eye-opening. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Again, thank, thank you for being open to this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and willing to have this, you know, have this discussion. Yeah. Yeah. I I just, I have so many thoughts right now, but I think it's just, I think we've come to a point that we all realize that we don't know a lot about diversity Mm -hmm. and what you said, equity is is a great term. Mm -hmm. Um, And like you said, we all think we're being fair. We all think we're being equal, but it's bigger than that. It's, it is. And I think when we, when we, when we take that step back, yeah, we can see that we're not being, you know, it's, it's not equal. It's yeah. not this, you know, we're not gaining access. You know, one of uh, my previous institution where I, where I um, used to work, part of their admissions process, and I know I'm kind of harping and beating up on admissions, but it's a gatekeeper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? You know, I mean, I could talk about other, other things, but, that, but that's another conversation, but just keeping on admissions. 
part of the admissions process was interviewing. And I would, when I was interviewing some of the, the, the um, applicants, I would always ask, where are you from? And most of them were from in-state. Someone came from the South, and this was in the Midwest. Like, you came all the way up here for this interview. How fair is that? Right? Everyone doesn't have the means to fly or drive up, you know, from coast, from the West Coast to the Midwest or from the South to, you know, everyone doesn't have that, you know, have the means to do that. So how many applicants did they miss out on because they, because that student couldn't afford to travel for a 10 minute interview, right? So equity, okay, maybe instead of a face-to-face interview, why don't we do Zoom? Yeah, yeah. Or Skype? Yeah. But, you know, let that be part of the process versus, you know, I have to shell out a whole, all this money, right, to, <laughs> to interview and then may not even receive an invitation. Yeah. Right. And then, and we know that with admissions, because it's so competitive, we have students applying to like seven different programs and not all of them have admission, uh, have interviews as part of their admissions process, but my goodness, just think if there were two mm-hmm. <laughs> and you, and you had to, you know, try to get a, a, a cross country. Yeah. You know, it's tough. Yeah. It's tough. So was there any was there anything else that I don't think so. I think this was wonderful. I think okay. this is gonna be so helpful. Is this, is this, this was I gave you enough to kind of splice together. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well thank you so much, Valerie. Oh you're wonderful. welcome. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.